Hello and welcome back to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And we've been talking over the last few weeks and months about the book of Daniel. And it's a fantastic book to talk about. Alistair, hi, once again, welcome. It's great to be back with you again. It's a real pleasure to have you back, as always. Now, how do the early chapters of Daniel present us with a conflict of empires, this conflict between God's empire and Nebuchadnezzar's Babel project, if we can call it that? Well, that expression, Babel project, I think really gets at part of the nub of what's going on. As we look through the book, and we've seen already, there are a number of allusions back to the story of Babel, which presents us with a sort of template against which to read what's taking place. This is a sort of repeat and uh, refraction of the larger story of Babel across many chapters. And so we see different aspects of it dwelling upon the same sorts of themes, struggles of interpretation, the hubris of empires and kings, attempts to have these grand construction projects that bring together all humanity, this um, struggle to storm heaven, as it were, and to take the prerogative of God alone in being the master of the nations upon man's self. And so as we read through this chapter, I think we see something of that theme coming into a very strong expression. This is in part a response on Nebuchadnezzar's part to the dream of chapter two. He's had this threatening dream, this dream that suggests that there is a terminus to his empire, and now he wants to respond with something that symbolizes his commitment to have an empire that will not end, that will not pass on into another empire of silver and then of bronze and then of iron mixed with clay. This is going to be an empire that is gold all the way through. It's all Nebuchadnezzar's empire from head to toe. Absolutely it is. Now, well, it isn't actually, as he finds out. Um, but what did we learn last time in chapter two about this empire statue? What did it represent? Well, it has three different, well, it has four different stages to it. As you go down through the body, you can see there are four different levels to it, and they're formed of different metals. They go from the most precious and rare metals to things that are fairly common, but more serviceable. So you can do a lot more with iron than you can with gold, but gold is more precious. And so there's a movement, as it were, out from the central head, out to the iron and then the clay. And as you have that movement out, it increases in one sense in strength. But then at the end, it becomes admixed with the clay. And there's this movement from the pure metal of the gold to a lower metal of the silver to an alloy with the bronze. And then beyond that to an admixture that's uncertain. And so it's, as it were, the attempt of man's empires to reach out, to hold together all of humanity within a single structure, and the way that that is doomed to failure. It's not something that can be successful. And in certain ways, we can see this as similar to the structure of something like the temple. The temple moves through these different metals as you look through its construction. So if you look in the Holy of Holies and the items associated with it, it's gold. And you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have the other items that are within the holy place that are associated with it, the, the lampstand, for instance. And as you go out, you see this movement down to silver. So the, certain of the hangings and the fittings of the tabernacle structure itself are made of silver. And then out in the courtyard, you have the bronze labor and the bronze sea. And then beyond that, you'll have the metal implements for use in for instance, the, the work of the, um, the altar. 
I want to come back and ask you about the religious symbolism, because in a sense, Nebuchadnezzar is set up as a parody of the Old Testament system, isn't it? But we better find out, first of all, what actually happens in chapter three. So the story is, again, set upon a plane. It's not the same plane as we have in the story of Babel, but it does bring our mind back to that. This is another attempt to rebellion on a plane. And it's this great plan to have man joined together through this great act of worship of this great imposing statue that is set up, six decubits by six cubits, that's set up upon this plane and bringing together all these musical instruments in a common act of worship. Peoples of every tongues, tribe and nation will be joined together in this common bowing down to this statue. Now, we don't know where Daniel was at the time, but Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are there and they do not submit to this. And all the orders of the society in Babylon have been assembled for this. The fact that they are not drawing it, drawing, taking part is conspicuous. They're brought to the attention of Nebuchadnezzar by the officials. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar's response, a mixture of anger and frustration. But then at that point, he gives them another opportunity. Will they bow down? And they don't. And then they suffer the consequence, which was described for failing to bow down in this way. They are placed into the burning fiery furnace, which is heated up extra times. And in the end, even as they're thrown in, they're preserved within it. And there's another figure that appears with them. When they're taken out, then they are vindicated and the Lord's rule is stated in a way that in many ways underlines the judgment of chapter two. What is Nebuchadnezzar trying to do by setting up this image? It does seem to be in part a response to chapter two. You have this prophecy of his kingdom that will come to an end of the fact that he is just the golden head. There are all these other parts of the statue that will come after him. Now, what do you do with that? Well, you try and set up an image of the golden image that covers every single level of the body. It's a complete Nebuchadnezzar image. And as a result, it's this idea, I am going to be the one who brings together all of humanity with this image. And it is a pure Babel project, it's this towering image. And it's attempt to, it attempts to bring together people of every tribe, tongue and nation. It's a unification of humanity. And you can see that in a number of different ways. It's a sort of horizontal project with all these different musical instruments taken from different countries in this great chorus which brings together the different nations. If you can't get everyone speaking the same language, get them singing the same song and joining together in the same sort of act of praise. And then every single level of society in Babylon, from the very highest satraps down to the, um, the equivalent of the sheriff, it would be a complete structure of Babylon from head to toe, and then also all the way out into the world. It's uh, an attempt to bring together humanity in all of its dimensions, and to express this in an act of false worship. How has Nebuchadnezzar misunderstood his place in the empire statues uh, system and the system outlined in chapter two that Daniel's explained to him? Well, first of all, he's not the one that's going to be ultimately constructing this. The Lord is establishing the statue. The Lord is also going to be the one that who brings down the statue. And he has this idea of himself as the one who can establish kingdoms and build up empires, and that he is ultimately the one holding the reins of history. 
but he's not. And he'll find that out by the end of this account. And it will be reaffirmed in the next chapter. And then we'll see it in a far more definitive way in chapter seven and what follows. He's a typical politician, really, isn't he? Let's <laughs> have a statue to me. Sounds like a good idea. Does he, is he confusing church and state, Alistair, with this, with this idea? I, th- I think the confusion is um, more a confusion between God's reign and human reign. Now, you could imagine a sort of church project. And I think in some ways Rome is a bit like this, an attempt to form the unity of the church in a, a way that's according to man's pattern, rather than recognising that Christ is the true Lord of the church. And it's not primarily ordered around any king or pope, for that matter. But, yeah, I, th- I think that there is uh, a recognition also that he is not the proper object of worship. The proper object of worship is the Lord alone. And this attempt is a sort of idolatry that he's putting himself forward as an object of worship, as we'll see again in chapter six. It's more than that, though, too, because isn't it? We've already touched on this that this religious worship of chapter three really is a kind of parody, down to all the details of the officials and even the orchestra. It's a parody of the of Israel's temple worship, isn't it? And we see that on several occasions within Scripture, the way in which these pagan nations have celebrations that really are reminiscent of what happens in the temple. If you read, for instance, the beginning of the book of Esther and compare that to the establishment of the tabernacle in the wilderness, there's there's all sorts of interesting echoes in the one of the other, which suggests those elements of parody, or at least that the text wants us to recognise that there is something parodic of true um, authority and rule of true worship taking place in these pagan celebrations. Yes, and of course, we should right. remember that the um, king has taken the articles from the temple to his house, and later on they will appear again in chapter 6. I was going to ask you how humour and even satire are used really brilliantly here in chapter 3, aren't they? Yes, and part of the problem is that you, you need to read this text well to get it. But when you read it and you repeat these elements that are repeated to a redundant degree, you'll realise that there is a lot of humour in the text. The text wants to ridicule Nebuchadnezzar, just the excess of what he's doing. And the fact that it constantly repeats this litany of different items, whether it's the instruments or whether it's the people's tongues and nations or whether it's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, whatever it is, this constant repetition has a sort of humorous quality to it. And you do get that actually in uh, the story of Babel in um, Genesis chapter 11. There is, in the language itself, there is plays upon the words, which um, within the text itself, and the way that it is formed as a literary entity, you get some sense of the what's happening. There's a play upon the confusion of language. And here I think, this constant repetition is for the purpose of mockery. And if you read it well, you will highlight that and express it. This is one of the challenges when we're reading scripture, that we want to read it in a way that conveys its sense. And when you read this text well, I think you'll be able to see quite clearly that there is all this sort of parody and mockery going on. Yeah, what's the significance of all the music? How does, how does music fit into this parody in chapter three? It seems to me that music is an attempt to overcome the problem of confused language 
in part. If you think about music, music is one of those things that brings people together more than anything else. If you want language that unites people, it is song. If you think about those great gatherings that we have together, whether it's um, watching a football match or whether it's for a great state celebration, whatever it is, we sing together. And that singing gives us a sense of commonality and union. And if you want to bring together all these different peoples who are scattered with different nations and languages, well, song is one of the ways to do that. And so as you join together in this act of praise and worship with musical instruments and musical instruments of diverse origin, the actual language for these instruments, it's hard to tell where each of them are from, but there's a, an array of different um, national origins or cultural origins of these instruments, which I think suggests part of what's going on. There's a, a sort of cosmopolitanism to music that can exceed some of the problems that we have with language more generally. So you can listen to music from, um, I don't know, 18th century Austria, and it makes sense to you. Because even despite the language differences, music is a sort of language that exceeds um, the limits that we find in that way. And so it is an attempt at overcoming Babel through this act of musical worship. Is Nebuchadnezzar's orchestra a parody of the orchestra in the temple system? We can see it that way as well, I think. In the conclusion of um, David's setting up of the, the temple, he gives a lot of attention to the musicians. The whole work of David in preparation for the temple is in large part, as Peter Lightheart has argued, a revolution in song. He's trying to establish a very different sort of of worship that brings music into something that has previously been fairly silent. So you have on occasions things like the trumpets on the day of trumpets, but for the most part, there doesn't seem to be song as a regular feature of worship. But with David, that comes into play. And so there's a bringing up of these, what would otherwise be silent, liturgical and sacrificial acts. They're brought up into a framework of song. And this is one of the things that we see within the life of the church, that what we perform in our song is in some ways analogous to sacrificial and liturgical acts that you would otherwise find in silent form. Music glorifies and it takes those things which are speech and ex expresses something of the glory of the word. And so I think that's part of what's taking place here. Any attempt to what, what we see is a false form of worship over against what is the true form of worship, which we see in the temple and the tabernacle. Mm. How do the list of Nebuchadnezzar's officials correspond to the role of the Levites in the Old Testament system? Well, one of the things that becomes clear in the context of worship often is the order of society. Uh, you have a very clear structuring of society and a community in worship it comes into a sort of clarity as you all join together in this coordinated act and what's happening here in part is the bringing together all the different elements of i mean this is the body of um babylonian society it's showing you every single one of the structures from the head down to the toe and so this is the human form in many ways of a statue and um, you've got the head Nebuchadnezzar himself, and then all these different elements of the body of the polity. And so it takes you down from the satraps who would be over the large areas, then the officials over particular regions, 
then all the way down to the magistrates who would be like the sheriffs or the police. And we get fire too, don't we, in this uh, in the setup? Is it a, is that too a parody of the fire in the tabernacle and temple? Do you think? Perhaps. I mean, it it most likely has some role in the construction of the statue itself. So you can imagine needing to prepare lime, for instance, or you know, melting down the metal um, for the statue. You would need to have a big furnace there, and so I think that fire is part of this. And also we can see before what is essentially um, symbolically a man laid on its side in the tabernacle, a human structure. You have a similar thing here. So you have the, the fire before the great statue. And at least that is what the text would seem to suggest um, to our minds, I think. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the, there's a sacrificial system where animals are, are killed and then and then burnt. But here, Nebuchadnezzar is trying unsuccessfully, thank goodness, to burn people. Yes, and we could think of what takes place in that sort of worship. When you burn up an animal, it's consumed. It's it ascends into the presence of God, and so the fire is in part a movement up into a consuming of the worshiper into the body of the tabernacle and into the um, body polity, as it were, of the people united with God in, in, of Israel united with the Lord. Now, one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar seems to be doing within this great project is to assimilate all of these elements of, of great empire into one body. And the fire can be another image of that. The fire melts down, it destroys and consumes, and Maybe what we're to see here is an attempt to melt down this resistant element, to either consume it or melt it down. So it can either be removed as dross or it can be taken up into the statue. But they don't oblige. No, Thanks to the Lord's intervention, they are not actually melted down or taken up. It's actually becomes quite horrifying as the thing as the thing as the chapter goes on. How I want to talk about numbers in this chapter because you know I have a bit of a, an interest in in the way numbers are used in scripture, and I think you do too. How was the number seven? How used? did you guess? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how I guessed that, brother. I know it just came to me as I read your <laughs> read your material. How was the number seven used in this chapter? I mean, we've got seven groups of men. We've got seven lots of musical instruments. We've got. I'm using James Jordan's commentary because he he itemizes it all, doesn't he? The word gold appears seven times. You've got the furnace being heated seven times more. There's something going on, isn't there? Yes, and you could maybe see this as uh, we see number seven on a number of occasions within the book of Daniel. I think the most notable occasion perhaps would be the 70 weeks of years. And so there's almost a striving for a number that is associated with God's own work the rest that comes on the seventh day, for instance. And so that striving for that completion is something that actually ultimately proves vain. And the fact that the statue is 60 by six maybe reminds of the way that the 70 by seven of the Lord's establishment of his kingdom, but this is a falling short. Yeah, is this a parody of God's creation week with all these sevens? I think that's one way to see it, yes. It certainly is an attempt to establish something that only God can establish. Mm. Now, we come to the, uh, the bit that really fascinates me, uh, and I suspect fascinates anybody who reads Daniel chapter 3. Who is the fourth man? It might be worth stepping back a bit and thinking more about what the fire represents. 
we see fires on a number of occasions in scripture that do not consume. I think the most notable example is the burning bush. We also see the fire around the Lord's throne, that the fire surrounding the throne in places like Daniel chapter 7 is not a consuming fire. Oh, it's a fire that will consume that which is impure, but it is something that will leave that which is holy. And here we have, as it were, pure people that cannot be consumed by the fire. They can't be melted down because there aren't impurities to destroy. And there's, there's a sense also of the fire as a realm of testing. So as we look back through scripture, we can see images of the fire as a realm of destruction or of testing of the righteous. So think of the way that you have the image of Babel is formed around a brick kiln. It's the attempt to fire bricks and to form this new type of construction material through fire. You have a similar thing in the way that Egypt is frequently described as the iron furnace. It's the place where iron is melted down. But in that image, it's an image of persecution, of nation being melted down and almost destroyed. But that image of the burning bush, I think, takes something of the way in which a nation is being placed into this roaring fire and it's not being destroyed and the Lord is with them in that. And I think this is something similar here, that Babylon is another sort of um, furnace that the people have been cast into. And the image is not just of these three men. They stand for something more about the, the plight of the people, that they have been cast into this furnace like the brick kiln or the um, iron furnace of Egypt. This is a new furnace, and yet they are going to be preserved in this furnace. And what's more, the Lord is in the person of his angel is going to be with them. And the angel of the Lord, I think, is here, the pre-incarnate Christ. So I think I would read this also along with chapter six, where the lion's den is the particular punishment, but it's also a very powerful symbol of exile more generally, that the lion's den, Babylon is associated with the lion. It's the realm where you'll constantly have the lion-like figure. You'll have people with names like Ariok and other things like that. And now the people are preserved within this realm, which would seem to be the den of this um, predatory beast. So the chapter really does point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ in that the Lord Jesus as the pre-incarnate angel of the Lord is fully present. We might, we might best spend a couple of minutes, Alistair, in the time we've got left to deal with the subject, because I know there's been some contention about this over the years, but this has been a traditional reading of this chapter. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus as the angel of the Lord, has been a reading that has had been prevalent in church history. But some folk still find it a bit troubling, don't they? Yeah, so and I think there are, it's the sort of thing that if you read each chapter, where you might make that connection individually, it seems often a very weak connection. When you read them all together, it's like trying to avoid every single one of the stones of an avalanche that's coming down a mountainside, because there are so many of them. And there are many different ways in which, taken together, it's hard to fit this to any other figure. In the book of Daniel, we'll have later on figures like the man at the river who appears, who is just described in a way that reminds us more than anything else, of the beginning of Revelation and the description of Christ. We have figures like Michael. We have figures like the angel of the Lord who goes before them in the wilderness, and the name of the Lord is in him, and he has the power to forgive sins. 
we have the figure of the commander of the army of God before whom Joshua bows and who is presented as a figure in some ways who is worthy of worship. Now, we know on other occasions that angels refuse worship. They say that this belongs to God alone. So why on these occasions is an angel receiving worship? Perhaps he's not just an angel. Likewise, if we're looking in Genesis chapter 18, we have the appearance of the Lord to um, Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. And that appearance of the Lord introduces a story. We're told that the Lord appeared to him. And it introduces a story where there are three visitors, one of, of whom presumably stays and the other two go on to Sodom. Now, we're told that the Lord stayed and spoke with Abraham. And earlier on in the chapter, the Lord speaks concerning the, um, the birth of Isaac. And so if we follow that chapter through, it seems clear that one of these three men is the Lord himself appearing in some sort of form. Now, should we understand that? How should we understand that? It seems most reasonable to me to think of this as the angel of the Lord, the angel of the covenant and Christ himself. And as we go into the New Testament, what we find is that the figure that we meet in Jesus Christ is the figure who has been walking with Israel throughout its journey. It's the figure who wrestled with Jacob at the ford of the Jabbok when he first received his name. It's the figure who met with Moses at the burning bush. It's the figure who prophesied the birth of a child to Abraham and the one whose seed he would ultimately be. And so Christ is walking through every step of the story. And when he appears on the scene, it's a great revelation of the one who fulfills the story. He has been with them in the darkness and the fire of exile. He's been with them in every single step of the journey and appeared to them along the way. And then in this great unmasking, where we see this is Christ himself, we read everything differently. It's like that great moment of revelation in a detective novel. And you can never read the story in the same way again, because you know who this figure is. You know exactly how it all works out. And so all these details that you saw previously that would have been puzzles are now um, your eyes are opened and it all makes sense. Well, yes, it does. When you explain it, when the rest, when the rest of us try and work it out, it's sometimes a bit, a bit, a bit of a, a stumble. <laughs> but thank you so much, Alistair Roberts, Daniel Chapter 3, uh, Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And Alistair, just before we go, where can people find you on social media? So if you look for adversariapodcast.com, You'll find all my stuff there. If you look for audio.com, audio.alistairadversaria.com, I think that's the name, um, you can find all of my recordings. So every single chapter that I've done a, a commentary on. Wonderful. At this point, I've done almost the whole Bible. You've been busy. <laughs> Alistair, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you for having me. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.